Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tolling, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, welcome everybody to um, GodPod. And um, this is a, a very famous GodPod because this is number 50. Uh, as you can see, we have a bit of a rowdy group of people here um, backing us up. And uh, because it's Godpod number 50, we are actually going to open champagne Hooray! for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're going to drink it as well as open it. <laughs> exactly. Now, if you if if listen to this carefully, you can see a pop going on in a moment. Well, you'll hear it. Hear it. See it here we go. Here we go. Hooray! Hooray! Oh! 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 And uh, Jane and is going to carry on because my phone and is Graham's just going phone off. Is <laughs> it's all chaotic here. What's going on? Uh, hang on a minute. That's right. somebody ringing in to say, congratulations on the 50th God exactly. No, they're phoning right, in yeah, to yeah. complain about alcohol. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, how am I doing? So, and, and even worse, it's not real champagne either. It's, what? Um, uh, what is it? It's sort of, sort of some Hello? sparkling thing. So anyway, here we are. It's not real theology we do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sparkling theology. Sparkling, yes. And, so, um... um so here we are. So the champagne is, um, is yes. heading round, and we've actually spilled most of it on the table. Yeah. Which is Don't worry, I'll idea. just lick the tablecloth. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay, so we are about to drink to um, Godpod number 50. So wherever you are in the world listening to this, um, we hope you enjoy this Godpod and um, join with us in, you might drink, raise a glass of water or coffee or whatever you're drinking at the moment, say... Um, 50th Godpod, so here we are. 50th Godpod. Yeah. That's right. And here's mm. the next 50. Mm. Exactly. Every bit as good as the first 50. So, the uh, the Slightly cult- better would be good. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a real milestone for the cult classic that has become Godpod. And so all you listeners out there, thank you for... Um, yep, both of you. Thank you very much <laughs> for uh, downloading it, keeping us interested, <laughs> giving us a reason to uh, carry on doing this thing. Kind of like old times today because it's um, uh, our little threesome. It's the old crew. It, it's us again. <laughs> <laughs> Do you no. remember we started in a hut somewhere, didn't we? We did, didn't we? Yeah, we used to be in a hut. A shack, one might say. It was a shack. That's right, yes. And yes. now we are in a high-tech recording studio. Know, we've come a long way. Uh, so we have Mike. We do, I'm afraid. Sorry. And we, do. we also have Jane. We do. And we have me, Graham, Graham Tomlin. And um, so it's this sort of the original team. No exciting guests today, just the boring old same people. And um, we have biscuits, as we always do. But uh, as you've already heard, we have champagne rather than coffee today, just to really branch out. So and, excuse um, us if our answers are slightly <laughs> less coherent yes, than usual. Sorry, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> they get slurred towards the end of the time, you will know. Um, now, I did want to read out one email that came through, which I, I really loved, actually. Um, which is another unintended um, uh, consequence of Godpod is that we are actually very effective in, in, in weight loss. Do you realise this? Not here, we're not. No. <laughs> <laughs> no this is someone saying, um, this is uh, someone called Andrew McLean, 
He says, uh, I want to start by thanking you for all your work on the Godpod. I've always hated running and hate running to music as I find myself running in time to the tune, which is ridiculous when your iPod skips to the prodigy. Um, <laughs> since discovering the Godpod, I've managed to lose a stone running along to your dulcet tones. Keep up the good work. What, with a kidney stone? Or <laughs> so, yeah, did you realize that's right? We have a powerful effect on, on you know, if you want to lose weight, you've got to listen to Godpod. But it would be helpful, as Mike says, if it worked for us as well. Maybe not you two, but yeah, um, well, so perhaps we should have an exercise god pod. Next, I think it next means time. a bit While of we're all peddling away. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> would, that, would that increase the quality of the, 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 the <laughs> theology that comes out of these things? I don't know. But um, it's really only one direction it can go in. <laughs> That's true. Um, so, anyway, on the 50th god pod, we were intending to have. Um, uh, Paul Cowley and Matt Wilson, who are uh, involved in HTB in the kind of whole social transformation area, but um, Matt has, uh, Matt's wife has just gone into labour and is having a baby, so it's just wonderful news. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, they're going to come another time. So that's why we're just the three of us today. But we thought that's kind of fitting, really, after yes. all this time. So we've got a, a few questions we want to um, to look at today, and one of the things we we thought we'd talk about is, um, I guess the, the the vision behind what we're doing here is if you've been a listener to Godpod for some time, you'll know that um, uh, this podcast comes out of uh, St. Paul's Theological Centre, which is based in Holy Trinity Brompton in London. And um, the three of us, Mike, Jane and I, um, were involved in setting it up a number of years ago. Uh, we're now part of a, of a broader thing called St. Melitus College, which is the Church of England's newest Theological College. Um, Sounds like some kind of disease, doesn't it? It does, really? does slightly, but Melitus was a very fine man. Indeed. Of course. First Bishop of London, third Archbishop of Canterbury, founded St. Paul's Cathedral. Not bad for a CV. And, and now his greatest endeavour so far. His posthumous exactly. accomplishment. <laughs> exactly. Us. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I hope he's proud of what we do. <laughs> and um, But anyway, we, we, we thought we'd talk a little bit about the vision behind... Um, you know why we started, and, and in a sense, you know the vision into which Godpod fits, because um, one of the things we we decided to do when we started all, all this um, about four years ago was this, this vision of, of theology in the heart of the church, um, and the sense that um, uh, that's kind of what needed to happen really to to get theology back into the um, the hands and the hearts and the minds of if you like ordinary Christians, lay Christians, rather than having it all hidden away in universities and, and, and seminaries where it's all right if you've got the time and the money to go and study it, but um, to make it a bit more accessible. So um, I don't know what your reflections are on that theme and where we've come from and um, what we've been doing over the last few years. So, um, yeah. I think um, it is just so exciting to be part of it, for one thing. If you think we started with about six students and and the three of us, yeah. and now it's growing mm. exponentially, which suggests that it is actually doing something that the church needs. Mm. But the thing I love about it is that um, it seems to me both theology and the church benefit mm. from this combination, mm. uh, that, that theology done outside a worshipping community becomes simply an academic subject, uh, mm. and you don't ever have to think about whether it's true, whether it's relevant, whether it transforms lives, whether it makes any difference to anything. Uh, and equally, churches that don't do theology um, are in danger of becoming extremely shallow. Yeah. So I think both sides of this equation really needed this to happen. And it, it does seem to happen, doesn't it? I mean, we have, for instance, our Saturday morning courses that uh, pe- people give up their Saturday mornings, get up early to come in and and uh, do either the 
the Bible track or the faith track or the, or the life track. And that's one of the great places where we kind of engage with people. Our Monday courses also do have not just ordinands, mm. people in Vicar Factory, mm. but, um, but ordinary people as well. Mm. Um, and we've, it, rather fun is the kind of things that we've done with, say, Worship Central, Central which is um, doing inputting some theology into um, the, the, the workshops that worship leaders uh, have and, and that's been very exciting because actually most people pick up their theology from what they sing yeah. in church yeah. as much as anything else yeah yeah it's, it's, i was in a, a country which shall be nameless um in central europe um a couple of weeks ago where actually they were talking about um theological training and very interested in that in the model that we developed here which is to to do theology for lay people within churches uh, and also to do um, uh, ordination training, church leadership training from within um, local churches and leaving students engaged in practical ministry at the same time as doing really stretching theology uh, rather than taking them out of those churches and putting them into a, a sort of academic setting. And um, they, they were contrasting with the way um, theological training happens there, which is primarily within universities. If you want to train for ministry in a church, uh, you go off to a university, to a, a theology faculty where you do a three or four year degree course um, and it was it was fascinating thinking about that because it struck, it struck me that a bit like you were saying Jane I guess in, in a in a theology faculty where you haven't got the responsibility of thinking about church and how it grows and how it works and whether it works or not actually you can end up with a fairly irresponsible type of theology where you can come up with all kind of ideas that sound good but it doesn't really matter whether they actually grow a church or not um, or whether they build up the faith of, uh, of, of, of Christians, because actually that's not your purpose. Your purpose is just to teach courses and uh, and so on. Um, now, obviously, that's a slight caricature, and I'm sure those who a lot of people who work in universities, um, I mean, do do a fantastic job, and, and it's uh, it's a very good thing that universe that theology happens in universities. But it seems to me that that if that's the only place it happens, and if that's where we do our our training in a way that is, is divorced from the practicalities of, of leading and growing churches, then there's something about that that keeps our theology honest, it seems to me. Um, because we've got, because you, know, we, you end up asking the question, okay, well, I might come up with this theory about the resurrection, or about, but at the end of the day, is it actually going to build the church or is it going to undermine it? And um, that's a very good question to ask about any theological um, exploration we do. Is there, on the other hand, a danger that uh, doing it our way also has has temptations to, to dishonesty in it, in the sense that we're tempted, we might be tempted to say, well, this builds up people's faith, this helps people to live their lives and, and is good for the church. So we all not ask too many questions about whether it's rigorously true, whether it actually fits the facts, whether there are some counter arguments that were mm. soft peddling a little bit. There, there, there are, I think, some temptations and dangers. Yeah. Which is, I think, ways. one of the, the advantages of having students who are not studying full time. They're involved with work, they're involved with churches, mm -hmm. they're involved with real people asking real questions. They mm -hmm. don't want to come and be fed a line. They want to, to be able to equip themselves to face the challenges of a world that doesn't um, automatically believe what we believe. Um, so, it, yes, obviously we have to do it intellectually as rigorously as you would do it in, a, in an, an academic academy. environment. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's something we've always sought out to try to do because sometimes um, 
courses that don't have um, sort of full-time study can end up slightly maybe dumbing down the mm-hmm. the um, the quality of the, of the teaching. And I guess one, one thing we've always wanted to try to do right from the beginning was to to have the, the theology is every bit of stretching, if not more so mm-hmm. intellectually and academically than you get in a college or a university. But to combine that with the practical mm. demands of, mm. of, of, inv- of, being, of involvement with church, with ordinary people, with ministries of preaching and evangelism and pastoral work and, and, and building up churches and so on, because actually there's something creative that happens when you do those two things together. And don't you find that as a teacher? I, I've... I've just um, been doing a couple of lectures, for example, on the atonement, the theology of the cross. And I've done these lectures for years and years and years in academic settings. And to be doing them with a group of students who need to know what difference it makes to the people they're ministering to has just been hugely rewarding in in a teaching (coughs) setting to think about what um, a forgiven and forgiving church might look like. Um, it's not a question I've ever had to ask when teaching about the atonement before, and, and I've had to ask it in these lectures, and it's been so exciting. And I think that points up exactly the advantage of, of, of this, of what you were saying earlier, Jane, that it keeps the academic world and and the church and the world, actually, kind of in in talking distance with each other. Mm-hmm. So often the academic world, the danger of the academic world is that it is answering questions nobody's asking. And the danger of the church is that it's not being fed by rigorous mm. <laughs> thought and or anything fresh or new or creative. Um, to ask those sorts of questions that people are actually dealing with, actually wrestling with, uh, and to take them to the resources of theology um, and see what shed, light might be shed on them mm. is a hugely enriching process. Yeah. And you get asked different questions, don't you? I, yeah. I mean, I, I taught on... Martin Luther for years within, you know, within Oxford University where I was teaching before before here, and and um, you get asked all kinds of questions. How do you spell Luther? That kind of <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Very common question that yeah. one. Yeah. Um, but um, I mean, it's ever since coming here, I mean, no one has ever asked me the, you know, what's the relationship between Luther and late medieval nominalism? Are they not um, after lectures here? Whereas that was the kind of question you might sometimes get from more um, educated students in. In Oxford, it's a very interesting question, and, and you know, in its context, but please it's don't valuable. answer it now. <laughs> oh, oh, please! He's had too much champagne. He's off on his nominalist bit again. <laughs> um, but the questions you get here are very different. They are much more to do with, you know, what? Well, how do I take some of these sort of rich ideas within within Luther, and how do I apply that? You know, how, how, how do how do those get expressed in preaching? How do they they relate to issues of self esteem? You know, what does um, justification by faith have to say to some of the pastoral issues that I'm dealing with day by day? Like workaholism, for instance. Yeah, exactly. That's right. There's a sort of there's a there's a sort of cutting edge to the to the, the whole thing that makes you do theology in a different way, mm. which is fascinating, I think. It is. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. I mean, just just as a word of explanation for those of you who don't, who don't know, the way we do our ordination training here at um, at uh, um, at the St. Paul's Theological Centre part of St. Melitus is that all our ordinands are uh, they're full-time, they're full-time engaged in training, but they, um, they're training half the time on the job in a, in, a, in a church context, some sort of mission context, and the, and the other half uh, in the classroom. And, um, and it, we've just, I think we're just finding it a fascinating combination to do. Um, and we're also discovering that there's a real hunger to do this in lots and lots of different places. We keep getting... Um, queries from all over the world saying tell us more about this model we'd like yeah. to do it 
Um, and I think there is a growing realization that actually theology and church have become far too um, split, um, and neither has benefited from that. Yeah. I think I think your point is absolutely right, Jane. That this it benefits both. It really does benefit the church to have, um, you know. So, so that actually, for, for lay people, you don't have to leave your church to go and do theology. Um, you can actually do theology within the heart of the local church, which is what we're um, aiming to do. One of the plans we have is to is to begin filming and, re- and recording a lot of the, the uh, actual teaching we do within our within a centre, making that available for any so any church anywhere in the world can run their own basic theological course. And um, the first one of those is coming out a little bit later on, um, uh, quite soon. And um, but also to enable some churches to go beyond that to to do more advanced training as we've done here but it's it's nice that some of the the great theologians who who come and lecture for us also enjoy teaching in this context so that the academics um who've taught in oxford and cambridge and so on really enjoy the different kinds of questions that they they get asked and you know the great church leaders of the past were by and large also the great theologians of the church um you think of you mentioned luther earlier that athanasius augustine Mm. st paul they were all great doing theology at the heart of the church (laughs) it often strikes you how often and particular theologians are, are associated with places yeah. and churches. You know, Augustine of Hippo, Irenaeus of Lille, you know, Calvin in Geneva, Luther in Wittenberg. You know, they, they were actually engaged in teaching in churches as much as they were engaged in mm. theological work. Even someone like um, like Luther, who was involved in a university in Wittenberg, was actually preaching two or three times a week in the church in the middle of Wittenberg and was was fully involved in that. Mm. You know, Augustine was trying to build a church in Hippo at the same time as and doing his theological and, work. And spoke on the Bible pretty well every day in yeah. his seat in his exactly. church in Hippo. St. Paul and the whole of the Mediterranean. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad coverage, is it? <laughs> so um, as you can guess by this uh, enthusiastic conversation, we really believe in this vision of getting theology back into the the heart of local churches, making churches into theological communities. And um, so it's a lot of fun to be part of it. it is. We're the luckiest people in the world. We kind of are, like really. Um, Particularly with the champagne. <laughs> champagne. So yeah, even better. Um, which, uh, just as a um, little link into our next um, topic, I remember um, a little while ago, we had a, we had a reception where, um, very kindly, at Jane's, Jane's home um, at Lambeth Palace, and Jane's husband, Rowan, was... Um, was uh, giving a little introduction, and uh, he made a comment which I thought was very interesting. He said, "You know, he, he was talking as a, as a staff spouse um, in uh, the, the college." But so one of the things he did that struck him about the kind of the atmosphere within the college was the sort of particular mixture of theology and joy, and um, he sort of noticed that was something that marked out kind of what we what we do, which I think was quite interesting, and I think probably does reflect a little bit of what we're, what we're about. Um, which links into this is my my link Brilliant. into Brilliant. into uh, a question which um, came through to us from um, Charles Levy in Ottawa in Canada, which we we quite like this question, um, and he said uh, this in all probability you aren't able to cater to listeners with questions from outside your UK audience, but no. We do listen we to do. them. Absolutely. Lots of them, exactly, that's right. But on the slim chance that you might, and yes, we will, um, this is a question that's bothered, exercise, puzzled, concerned me all my life. I am made in God's image. I have a somewhat wicked sense of humour, and so do almost all the Christians, including clergy, that I know. Therefore, God must have a great sense of humour. Yet there is nowhere in the Bible this is evident to me. Oh, yes, theologians I've asked, 
uh, have pointed to stories with ironic twists that they dub as humorous. But not once does the word smile appear. I don't think Sarah's laugh was humorous. Uh, Jesus is a compassionate figure in anyone's book, and when I read the story of him blessing the children, I can see his smile, but the Bible doesn't say the words. And there are no jokes for me to pass on by email to my non-believer friends <laughs> who unfortunately see the Bible as a solemn book of rules or of the harsh punishment of the Old Testament deity. So um, humor in the Bible. Um, is there any? Um, are we stretching a point to say that there is? Um, there we go. It's very difficult. I kind of knew you'd come up with an answer to this well, one. Well, right? <laughs> I think about humour, um, even if it doesn't show. Um, <laughs> I, we force ourselves to laugh. Tracy, you're very loyal. <laughs> it's very impressive. Uh, it's very difficult spotting the humour in things outside your own particular century and culture, isn't it? It's really hard. I mean, you, you only have to go back through kind of 19th century punch cartoons and you think now what is funny about that mm, mm. some of them you can see some of them you get the point and others you just don't um, and similarly a book you know it's 2,000 years old or 3,000 years old as bits of the Bible uh, probably are it's really quite difficult to know what would have then have seemed uh, funny um, in a way that uh, we would recognise today mm. so that's part of the problem I think and possibly another part is that um, people who record these things, uh, I mean, for example, if, if one were to ask a student to, to recap your lecture, Mike, yes. they might, depending on the student, yes. um, give you the outline of what has actually been said, um, leaving out all the jokes that actually brought it alive for them. My, my fear is it might be the other way around. Well, that is a possibility. <laughs> that, that occurred to me as I was making that. <laughs> um, but the written record... Um, for example, of those who followed Jesus around, they may not have felt they had to record the jokes. But it seems to me clear in some of the parables that um, unless they were funny, they don't make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've been perhaps written down by somebody a, a bit pious and serious who mm. left the jokes out. Mm. Yeah. Um, but if Jesus really was the, the, the wonderfully attractive teacher that he clearly was, why did people follow him about the whole time to listen to him otherwise. I'm sure they were they were funny. There are bits of the Bible where you, you think these are just so ridiculous images that they must have been you know, they don't they strike us as slightly more odd than funny, but they must have been you know, the idea of a of a camel going through the eye of a needle yeah. is uh -huh. such a ridiculous idea that, you know, we don't laugh out loud at it, but it wouldn't surprise me if actually that was one that got quite a few guffaws going. And might have been century. sort of acted out. We think of Jesus sitting on a chair and chatting to people, but actually, it was most of the parables and things were told yep. on the hoof. They were all so they were almost <laughs> certainly some kind of you know acting out going on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are stories. I mean, I, there are stories I, I do find genuinely funny, like the one with St. Paul in Troas, where he's he starts. Speaking at sort of presumably around I know eight o'clock in the evening, and then they say he goes on talking till midnight, and then there's the bit where the, this poor lad was sort of sitting in the window and and um, fell asleep while Paul talked on and on. And, on. <laughs> and, and, you, you and again, our students of, might uh, sympathise. Yes. And then he sort of you know, falls out of the window, and, and you know he's sort of picked up, and Paul goes down, raises him from the dead, and then. 
then, he, then he says, you know, he goes back up and then Paul kept talking till daylight, you know. <laughs> so you think... Um, you know, Presumably they says, shut the window well, <laughs> after the point. horse had bolted. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, maybe just be, we, we find that funny, but I, you know, I, I can't help thinking there's a bit of humour in, and there's a little dig at Paul at that point. Yeah. Of, um, you, know, that, you know, we know he was a... Actually, we know Paul was a pretty boring speaker because he says so himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he says in 2 Corinthians, you know, I was... I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not very rhetorical, and, and he was probably a bit dull to listen to. He's and a bit more rhetorical than he lets on, isn't yeah, he? Maybe. I mean, he does use quite a lot of rhetorical devices. And yeah, that's right. But I think so. It does seem to be that. And I think, I think the other thing about you know the kind of God and, and humour thing. I mean, that, that strikes me that the fact that God gave us bodies is quite a it's a bit of a joke because actually our <laughs> bodies are quite funny, aren't they? Yeah. The fact that we do make jokes about them a lot of the time. A lot of our humour is quite sort of physical humour, our sort of toilet humour, even sort of jokes about sex in some ways are are actually sort of saying the fact that we have bodies is a, is a quite a funny thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that God has given us bodies, we're not spiritual, ethereal beings who are above actually kind of the kind of humour that, that, um, uh, that reminds us of our sort of physicality. But I, I really do suspect, in um, in response to to our, our question, that not many people uh, go and read the Bible, think there's no humour in in religion, and give up on it. I think most people encounter Christians who don't necessarily put across that we find yeah. our mm. our faith um, mm. hilarious and joyful. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think sorry, I think one of the other passages I've always found funny is uh, the bit in Job where uh, Satan encounters God in heaven and God says, where have you been? He's oh, just you know, here and there, <laughs> popping around. Um, and and uh, God says, hey, have you considered my servant Joe? He's, he's very good, he's very upright. He's very, you, know, you haven't done a very good job on him, have you? The, the idea of God kind of taking a rather kind of superior mm-hmm. pleasure in somebody who's resisted Satan's yeah. temptations. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there's a real kind of humour to that, the way that's been written up, it seems to me. Yeah. And I suppose that there are different forms of humour, aren't there? It's quite interesting to, to think about that and, and the way they relate to faith as well. I mean, one form of humour is satire, mm. um, which actually is a way of sort of undermining the pretensions of the uh, of the proud. And there's a fair bit of that in, in, in the scriptures and some of the sort of prophecies of the, the nations that are, you know, are proud. You know, humour has a, has a great way of of um, kind of Punching humbling you. And, exactly, and not mm. making sure you don't take yourself too seriously. That seems to be something profoundly Christian. Mm. You know, that we don't take ourselves too seriously. At the end of the day, you know, we are not that serious. Um, we are wonderful and strange. Exactly. Wonderful and strangely made. <laughs> and that, that seems to be the, the, the kind of balance that and that kind of understanding of creation and humanity gets that, you know, we have dignity, that we are given dignity by God. But at the end of the day, we we don't take ourselves too too seriously. That, you know, that in some ways the world is not necessary. You know, that, that God didn't have to create us. He created us out of joy. He created us because he wanted to. Um and because we're not necessary, because we're not, um, you know, we are, I feel like, contingent, not necessary, that means we don't have to take ourselves with utmost seriousness, which makes humour possible, it seems to me. Yes. Of course, there are forms of humour that are destructive under, yep. of other people that are mocking, mocking yep. in, a, in a destructive and negative mm. way. Mm. And obviously we're better off without those. And that you get hints of that, you know, yeah. woe to those who laugh now. Mm. 
Mm. Um, so there is that kind of critique of negative forms of humour simply yeah. because of the strange and wonderfully made nature of human beings, as you were saying. Yeah, that's right. Do you any slapstick in the Bible? I think Jonah is fairly slapstick, isn't yes. it? Jonah, the, the prophet, yeah. Yeah. sent to prophesy doom and then God just goes behind Jonah's back and saves people and Jonah sits and sulks. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. uh, I think that's just a wonderfully funny story. Yes. And a worm yeah. eats the tree that's sheltering him. Yeah. I know, it's, it's very good. So, um, humour in the Bible. Um, so thank you, um, Charles, for your question. A very interesting one. Um, and we thought we'd, uh, one more we'd um, have a go at, if we can um, manage it in the next five, ten minutes, which is... Um, Nice little simple question. Uh, is there anything God cannot do? Um, yeah. There's a question. Is there anything God cannot do? Yes. Do you, oh, you want me to say what? Expand. Oh, right. Go on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, it seems to me there are things that are just uh, incompatible with his character, mm. like sin, for instance. Uh, he wouldn't be very good at, I don't think. Um, so there's that whole kind of character issue. There's also the whole business of uh, you can't do things that are just logically incoherent, not because it's he's not omnipotent, but because they don't make sense. So the old kind of, you know, can he make a round square? Can he make uh, a stone too big for himself to carry? Um, oh. Is is not, a you know... A, the kind of knockdown yep. argument against God's, God's omnipotence that it's often used as, it's just incoherent. It doesn't make sense, and therefore it's no reflection on God's omnipotence that he can't do it because it isn't a coherent thing. So, yes, there are lots of yep. things he can't do. So, I think C.S. Lewis says, isn't it, at one point, you know, you don't take a sentence that is nonsense and make sense out of it by putting God can at the beginning of that sentence. Exactly. Um, and, of course, this is really important. This isn't just the kind of trick questions like the, the stone one. Um, it's also, you know, God cannot make somebody freely choose to do what is right. Mm. There's a logical incoherence to that, mm. which makes it impossible for him to do it. And that, of course, lies at mm. the heart of one's response to the problem of evil. Yeah. So God cannot do evil. Cannot do evil. He cannot make people freely do good. Yeah, I mean, the, the question goes on. I, I once heard a preacher say that he thought at the end of time God would dissolve hell as eternal punishment would be inconsistent with a loving God. But what if one of the things God cannot do is to unmake life? Um, what do you think of that? Well, I, that, that says to me, well, you know, what, what has he made? That which is not God um, is not immortal. Isn't, does not have life in itself hmm. um, and therefore anything he makes is mortal anything he makes uh, is is finite anyway um, and only his sustaining it in being hmm. is what keeps it in being hmm. um, now I think he wants to do that hmm. um, and that's why we are here and that's why we will hmm. continue to be here but, hmm. but that is the continuing gift of God not anything that I inherently have hmm. uh, that he can't do anything about. Yeah. Everything that I am is, is, is given by him, including my present and my future. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose it's, I mean, I, I agree with, with everything that you've said so far, but I also think that there are ways of talking about what God can and can't do 
that are actually about us wanting to control God. Um, and I always want to leave in any of these discussions huge uh, landscapes of, of remembering this is God we're talking about um, and that, that we don't actually know what he can and can't do. Um, we know his character towards us, which is um, utterly gracious, utterly powerful, utterly um, uh, wishing for our freedom and our growth. Um, uh, but I, I'm very unhappy ever about sort of statements that sound as though I'm telling God what he may and may not do. I, I think that's right. I mean, I remember the story of uh, two people in dog collars who find themselves sitting next door to each other on a plane and one says to the other, as I kind of rather worryingly uh, opening gambit that they thought might be useful, said, do you believe in infant baptism? And uh, the other one says, believe in it. I've seen it done. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in a sense, if you're going to, Talk about what God can and can't do. Look and see what he has done. And therefore you have to begin at the person of Jesus and, and see there um, what he can, can and cannot do, do because he's done it. Um, so I, I agree. It needs to be kind of Christologically shaped in that way. And if questions about hell are really about how we treat each other now, or at least partly about how we treat each other now, um, what possibilities we see in, in the people that we interact with now, then that's actually um, an important stretching of us, I think. To, if you mm. think somebody is, mm. is really cutting themselves off from God, um, what are you going to do about it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I guess it, I mean, it does, the question does lead into the whole debate around a kind of ultimate dualism. You know, at the end of everything, is there another form of life which is not gods um or is actually all life god's life mm -hmm. in other words is it the case actually that it's not as if we choose between two different forms of life but we choose between life and death mm. Mm. um we choose between life and non-life we choose between life which is the gift of god and if we switch ourselves off from god if we turn away from him actually we're not choosing something else we're actually choosing nothing mm. Um, because if you cut yourself off from God, who is the source and sustainer yeah. of life, mm -hmm. then exactly. you are choosing non-life. Yeah. yeah. So there are forms of life which try to run away from God, try to do without him, but they can only be temporary, it seems to me, in, in a sense. Because ultimately, um, if God is the author of life, he's the source of life, then to turn away from God actually is to turn away from life, existence, everything. Which is why Paul says... I mean, ultimately, God will be all in all. Yeah, yeah. There won't be kind of pocket, yeah. pocket of continuing resistance. Yeah. The final choice is God or nothing. You can choose nothing if you want to, mm. but it's that's what it is. It's nothing. But the whole story of the Bible does suggest that God has enormous patience yeah. with our constant choosing of half-life and no-life, um, mm. that otherwise um, creation would have been rounded up a long time ago. Yeah. If, yeah. If, if, if that was a choice that was made oh. within seconds in everybody's yeah. life. So the sense that, that, that God's infinite patience with people is bigger than we can imagine, um, I think, is, is something that comes out of reading the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And also, that, as you were saying, Jane, most talk about hell in the new testament is ethically directed it's mm. it's about how to live now it's mm. it's an encouragement mm. to mm. live in in lifeful ways now mm. and to realize the, the significance 
of the life that we live now, mm. to realise that it does have ultimate significance. Yes. Yes, it is. If if nothing we decided or chose made any ultimate difference, we'd be very insignificant beings. Mm. Yeah. And on that note, I think we will um, draw an end to God Pod number 50. So uh, thank you for listening, wherever you are. And uh, thank you to Jane. It's lovely to be here. And to Mike. Thank you. Looking forward to the next bottle of champagne. <laughs> yeah, we have to wait for that. I suppose. God Pod 100. I don't know when that'll be, but um, one day it will be. We will have two bottles of champagne on, on uh, God Pod 100. Anyway, so um, uh, that's it for uh, today. Uh, we'll be uh, doing another God Pod in a few weeks' time. And so please do um, um, download that one, or you can go onto iTunes and get it regularly downloaded, or just go straight to our website and um, see that. If you wanted to follow up a bit more about our own, um, uh, the work we do at St. Paul's Theological Centre and St. Melitus College. Uh, you can uh, look at our websites. Um, if you put either of those two into Google, you'll find it. Um, and if you want to know how Melitus is spelt, M-E-L-L-I-T-U-S. Very simple, really. So um, uh, goodbye from all of us. Bye. Bye. And uh, we will, um, hopefully you'll hear us hear from us next time.